0: At this point, just a reminder, we are now in the midst of what is referred to as the divided kingdom of Israel at this point, meaning that we now have two kingdoms. The ten northern tribes have their own king, and they will continuously, will see, be referred to as Israel. And then the southern kingdom, which is composed of Judah and Benjamin, they have their own king as well, the southern two tribes, uh, still really kind of being loyal and giving their allegiance to the house of David, and they will often be referred to as Judah. So as we work through uh, First and Second Kings, we kind of bounce back, back and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and who's reigning in the northern kingdom who's reigning in the southern kingdom and again when we read Israel it's referring to the north when we read Judah it's referring to the south so it's a little bit difficult sometimes to pay attention to uh, what particularly we may be referring to but the good news when we get to the book of Chronicles that's predominantly a focus on the southern kingdom of Judah itself and their kings. so it's a little easier to follow the, uh, the pattern there chronologically but at this point in our studies we come to chapter 14, we're particularly looking here in regards to uh, one of the kings of the north, in fact, the first king of the north, Jeroboam who unfortunately, though he was granted a very great opportunity, God, uh, because of the result of Rehoboam's disobedience, tore the ten uh, tribes away from Rehoboam and gave them to Jeroboam and gave him great promises, promises really almost as strong as he gave to David himself, that if he would obey the Lord and serve the Lord. But Jeroboam, unfortunately, very quickly, uh, turned away from the Lord. He began to be insecure. He began to let fear motivate his decisions and insecurity. And he started making decisions to try and kind of preserve his own little realm, if you would, and his own little uh, reign over what was going on in his life. And because of that, he made very poor decisions, began to introduce idolatry into the land of Israel and caused the people of Israel really to begin to head towards a path downward now where really for the next few centuries, they will begin to disobey God uh, as a nation, as the result of what one leader nationally uh, introduced to them as the result of his actions. We saw, in fact, if you, want, it would help in some ways. Look back with me in chapter 12, there in verse 26, that just sort of set the tone with where we're moving this evening. Uh, chapter 12, verse 26, uh, we're told regarding Jeroboam, the king of the north, that he said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David, If these people go up to offer sacrifices to the house Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people, he said, will turn back to their Lord Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, much like Aaron did back in the days of Moses, and then said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, Which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other golden calf he set up there in Dan, which is the far northern area of Israel. Now, this thing, verse 30, became a sin, for the people went to worship before one as far as Dan. He also made shrines, it says, on the high places and made priests from every class of people. That is, it didn't have to be called of God. Just whoever wanted to be a priest, they could sign up. And he was happy with that. Didn't matter whether they were godly or called of the Lord. Uh, They weren't necessarily the sons of Levi as God prescribed they were supposed to be. Verse 32, Jeroboam also ordained a feast. So he changed the even feast days that God had given as prescribed times of worship. He made his own feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, the proper feast. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did there at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves, these golden calves that he had made. And Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places, which he made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, the munch in which he had devised in his own heart, And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So we can see Jeroboam creates these two golden calves he, he institutes his own worship system that would be convenient for the people trying to again cater to their uh, fleshly desires hey whatever is convenient is always going to appeal most to people and, and you can just approach God on your own terms and your own way and kind of create your own religion and that's that's kind of what he does here he creates a system hey I want to make it as easy for you as possible and you shouldn't have to bear any cost or make any sacrifices for God and, and whatever would work for you so he sets up these two golden calves and his own special altar and new feast days, and he introduces idolatry into the land, is worshipping at this altar. At that point we saw that a prophet of God goes to him and rebukes him for his sin and his wrongdoing and this idolatry. And as a result of that, God confirming the power of his word from that prophet, it says in chapter 13 that the altar just split apart. So this miraculous breaking apart of the altar right in the midst of people in a public assembly happens at that point. And then look with me toward the end of verse, uh, or end of chapter 13, verse 33, where we continue on tonight. This is what we left off with. And after this event that is this cataclysmic event where the altar breaks apart after this prophetic word, Jeroboam, notice, did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of the people of the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated to him and became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to, consequence, exterminate and to destroy it from the face of the of the earth so he began to move in a path towards idolatry and sin leading the people together with him into idolatry and sin and though god tried to caution him god tried to rebuke him the altar split apart if you remember even at that point it says in chapter 13 he had stretched out his hand to try and resist the prophet of god and as a result of that his own hand withered and then afterwards when the prophet of god prayed for him his hand was restored i mean god was doing everything to bring him to repentance to try and show him his humanity and who the one true god was but jeroboam you read at the end of chapter 13 had no interest in repenting despite those things it says he did not turn and that's what true repentance is turning from your evil way again repentance in the bible is always quantified by that word turn it's not about tears because there are a lot of people who shed tears listen i have been in and out of police departments and pastoral ministry I, i've been in and out of prison cells uh many times and look there are lots of people who shed tears but don't necessarily have a heart to turn away from the wrong things that they've done you could be sorry for getting caught and sorry and sad that you're not going to face the consequences of your you know wrongdoings or crimes and so forth and truly be sad but genuine biblical repentance is turning It's genuinely turning away and saying, I choose to no longer live like that and I choose to turn the other way. Could it be accompanied with tears? Yes. Uh, But you don't even have to speak about repentance or shed a tear and you can genuinely turn. And you can genuinely repent. And Jeroboam, you can see, had no interest in repentance. He was willful in his rebellion, continued in this idolatry. And really, God views this kind of thing when you lead other people in sin. Listen, God views that really like spiritual kidnapping because you in a sense are stealing away God's children and leading them into spiritual adultery and idolatry and God views that like spiritual kidnapping to pull his children away from the worship of him so great consequence is going to now come as we'll see moving forward so chapter 14 begins by telling us at that time Abijah the son of Jeroboam became sick now We're not certain exactly how old Jeroboam's son Abijah is at this time when he falls sick or what he falls sick from. It's very likely he's probably not a super young man because it's going to tell us later in the chapter that the people had great respect for him. He's actually going to die. And it says the people mourned him, so they cared enough about him and knew enough about him as a young man. He had some measure of, uh, you know, character that was evident to the people that their hope was in this great prince since he had a wicked father, King Jeroboam, that they were actually greatly saddened when he died because perhaps they were hoping he would take over and maybe turn the nation in a different direction. So again, could he be 10 years old at this point? Could it be 12, 15 years old? We don't know. Uh, Somewhere still in his youth, but he falls sick now. God allows this, it seems, terminal illness to come upon one of his children. And you know, God is not at a loss for trying to find ways to get the attention of people. Uh, and God will allow things to transpire, many times just natural, everyday, ordinary events. Listen, uh, people get sick all the time. People get diseases all the time. Tragedies happen in this world all the time. That's a part of the course of life. But God has a way of using those kind of things to really trigger us and get our attention sometimes. Uh, and and here's a scenario. Here's a man, he is a king. He has great power He can tell anyone to do whatever he wants. He has tremendous authority. But look, it does not matter how much power you have or how much money you have. If one of your children falls terminally ill, that's a problem you can't fix. And now all of a sudden, there's a humanity and a humility that comes crashing upon your world where you realize it does not matter how much power, how much position, how much money I have. I can't solve this problem. This is beyond me. And God sort of touches a nerve in his life and allows him to begin to experience this crisis situation. So Jeroboam is going to try and get some resolve. He's hopeful that perhaps God will be merciful to him in the midst of this and intervene. But uh, perhaps really what he's just looking for is a resolve of his problem, but he has no real heart to honor God in the process. And so verse two says, Jeroboam said to his wife, and this is always what a rat does. He uses his wife to do his dirty business. Jeroboam said to his wife look what he tells her please arise and he says disguise yourself now ladies whenever your husband tells you to do something like that that's a real clear indication that's 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 bad guidance right there please arise disguise yourself that's when you say I'm called to submit but not to stupidity okay please arise disguise yourself that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam I don't want them to know that that this is the the wife of the king being sent out on this little errand, he says. Again, he's probably too proud to admit that he's actually going to go ask the prophet of God for help. So he says that they don't recognize you and go, notice, to Shiloh. Indeed, he says, Ahijah, the prophet, is there who told me that I would be king over this people. Also take with you ten loaves, some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him and he will tell you what will become of the child? So King Jeroboam, he's looking for some insight. He's worried, he's concerned, he's in a crisis. Interesting that he doesn't want to genuinely worship God, but when he's in a crisis, he wants God to help. And you know, this is so common to humanity, isn't it as well? So many people just look at God as sort of like the 911 operator, that's it. You know, they just, the only time they want to dial up God or reach out to God is when their when the world's in a crisis. And look, don't get me wrong, I, I'm thankful that Somehow, that's the way God gets our attention sometimes. And sometimes, genuinely, that's how we uh, find ourselves in brokenness and humility. And perhaps that's how some of us actually came to the Lord through a major crisis in our life. But too often, you know, people have no heart for God. They don't want to honor God. They don't genuinely want to worship God. They want to live evil, iniquitous, ungodly lies. But then as soon as a crisis comes, they want to dial 911, God help me out, give me answers, and fix my problems. And this is what Jeroboam's doing here. He tells his wife, put on a, a, a you know, pretend disguise and go to that prophet Ahijah. And he reminds her, remember, Ahijah was that prophet that came to me before I ascended the throne. And he's the one that prophetically told me, he says, that I would be king over this people Israel, he tells her in verse two. He says, that, that's, that guy predicted what was gonna happen in my life before. So he's in tune with God. God tells him things. And God gives him insight. So go to him and he says, take with you a gift, some loaves of bread and cakes and a jar of honey. Go there. And he says, and he'll be able to tell you what's going to happen with our son. He'll be able to tell you whether our son's going to recover, whether he's going to die. And hopefully maybe he'll tell us something favorable. So uh, she, verse four, Jeroboam's wife, she did so. She complied. She disguised herself, arose and went to Shiloh where the prophet was came to the house of ahijah but ahijah notice could not see for his eyes were glazed by reason of age so it could be an indication just you know bad cataracts he just he's an elderly man at this point and the idea glazed his eyes are is his vision is blurry that is he can't see very well at all which plays into exactly what's going on here she's disguised she's doing everything possible In her own efforts to hide who she truly is, to cover her real identity, to pretend she's someone that she really is not. And then on top of that, this man has no real capacity to see with any clarity with his eyes. Again, God's just setting the stage to make it all the more somewhat climactic when these things come to pass. And perhaps they even knew that, hey, that guy's vision, he's an, he's a, he's an old man, he can't see anything anymore, disguise yourself, we will never know what you, go in there, and, and God will tell him and he can tell us what's going to happen with our child. Now, to me, it's very interesting. This is what's somewhat, again, I find certain things humorous. He believes that this man will be able to tell them what's going to happen to her son, but he believes that somehow, though God can do that, God won't be able to see the disguise, Ooh, he won't he can see the future, but he won't see through if you've got your hair color or you know makeup on your face. I mean somehow that's gonna it just and you know this ghost goes to show me it goes to show that when people are living in sin, their reason is completely distorted. Their capacity, when somebody is living out of fellowship with God, when somebody is living in sin, one of the unfortunate things is their capacity, to reason and make decisions becomes so off track i mean it's the kind of they just make and you look at them sometimes and You think, i mean your reasoning is just out to lunch but that's what happened because sin is blinding and it's deceptive and it misguides us and so people when they're living in sin they begin to reason so off track because the reality is they're not living in the light they're living in the dark And just like if you were to shut off the lights in this room, nothing changes. But more than likely, you'd probably stub your toe on the way out the door and maybe trip over something because you're not seeing clearly because you're in the dark rather than the way the room looks when you're in the light. And that's the unfortunate thing when someone's living in sin and they're in the dark and they can't see. So he says, go there, pretend he can't see. But look what happens. Verse five. Now, the Lord had said that is before this you know, arrival of the wife of the queen even happens, the Lord had said to Ahijah, here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son for he is sick and thus and thus you shall say to her for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. So notice, God gives revelation to Ahijah the prophet and before she even shows up, God is fully aware of everything that's going on And he begins to inform the prophet of God. Listen, here's what's going to happen. The wife of Jeroboam, she's coming to you. Their son is sick. They're concerned about what the outcome is going to be. And when she comes, she's going to walk in and pretend to be somebody else. And God gives him all these specific details, listen, of something that is happening miles away from him in somebody else's house. But again, what God does here, this biblically is what we often refer to as a word of knowledge. This is one of the gifts of the Spirit. The Bible speaks of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. And there we read that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To one a word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge. And then it goes on to describe these various gifts. But the word of knowledge is... This in some ways is an Old Testament illustration of what that is, where someone who is completely removed from a circumstance or a situation and there's no possible way that they could know information, details about another person's life or a situation because they're completely disconnected from it, but yet God by his spirit gives them revelation and knowledge. He gives them a word of knowledge that they might know something That there's no other way they could possibly know humanly because they've never been told that and it's not like you know ahijah had his own little private investigators outside of you know king jeroboam's house and coming back and giving report but what ahijah did have is a god who knows everything because god has knowledge about everything the bible says in hebrews 4 that everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him our creator to whom we must give account god sees and knows everything so if God sees and knows everything about every human being in every situation, there's no detail of anything about anyone that he does not know at any time. To me, it's not that you know uh, remarkable to understand that if God chooses to, for his purposes and the benefit of a situation and what's best for people, to give the knowledge that he has as creator God to another person to impart that knowledge into their mind by his spirit, by a work of revelation that God can do that. And that's what a word of knowledge is here. So here we see this word of knowledge comes to the prophet. God tells him in advance, here's something you need to know. Now listen, th- does God do this just for no reason? You know, is God going to give somebody a word of knowledge about somebody else to shame them or to, of course not. These are unique occasions when God does this for the purposes of his ministry Or for some benefit or value of a situation that would be helpful or that's essential for some purpose of ministry. We see this same gift and operation in Peter's life in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira come and they try and deceptively pretend that they were doing something that they were not and were being hypocritical and Peter just calls them right on the spot, rebukes them and says, why have you lied to God and sought to you know, deceive and lie to the Holy Spirit? In other words, I, and Peter tells them exactly what they were doing. As soon as they walk in, he just calls them out right on the carpet and rebukes them for their sin. So this is what's going to happen. Verse 6 says, and so it was, and imagine this scene. Here she comes thinking, this guy can't see, and man, this disguise is pretty good. I mean, I came from the palace. This is the best disguise, best costume artist she can get from the palace. So it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, imagine this. He said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. I mean, you have to imagine what she, what she... Man, we're firing that guy. I mean, I thought this was a pretty good outfit I had on here. We're getting rid of him as soon as I get back. As soon as she walks through the door, he just calls her right out. How you doing, wife of Jeroboam? Glad you came in. And then he says these startling words in reproof. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you... With bad news. Look, she thought she was coming to. He, he was. She thought she was going to him, and had been sent to him. And he says, honestly, let me correct this for you. Your husband didn't send me to you. God sent me to you, to give you bad news, unfortunately. And, and that statement there, I have it underlined in my Bible. That phrase, verse six. He reproves her, saying, "Why do you pretend to be another person?" Boy, that's never ever a good thing. God wants us to walk in the light walk in humility and God does not like hypocrisy God does not like pretense God does not like when we pretend to be something or someone that we're not that is never good one of the places we see God being very severe in the word of God is towards hypocrisy Jesus one of the things that Jesus was most strongly against with the Pharisees the religious leaders were hypocrites hypocrisy pretenders And again, uh, the Lord here, this startling rebuke. Why do you pretend to be another person? Never good if you find yourself doing that. Verse 7, he says, Go and tell Jeroboam, your husband, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and I made you ruler over my people Israel, which was a very gracious thing. Verse 8, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you, yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes but you have done more evil than all who were before you that is combined for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back so the prophet gives this word of rebuke for her to send back as a message to her husband king jeroboam he says listen go back and tell him i gave you such a gracious opportunity You you did not merit or deserve or earn or do anything that you brought to the table, the opportunity that I've given to you in grace. But yet he says, look to him, he says, I exalted you, verse 7, from the low place you were in. I let you be ruler over my people. I tore the kingdom away from David. I gave it to you. And he gave him even the same promises almost as David, that I'll establish your throne forever. So he's saying, look, I gave you such an opportunity. I was so gracious to you, the Lord is saying I offered such a kind opportunity in front of you, but yet, he says, you spurned my grace. You disregarded the opportunity I set before you and ruined your potential, he says. He says, you haven't followed me and you have on top of that, he says, done more evil, verse 9, than all who were before you you were more evil than others combined and reminds him of the sinful things he'd done of introducing idolatry and then that statement the end of verse 9 the strong language and you've cast me behind your back that is just you know i kind of you know if you can look at me from the visualization it's almost like god said you were like this to me i just don't want anything to do with you and just casting god behind you i don't need you i don't want anything to do with you what a sad thing To think that a human being after having been so graciously you know blessed by god and dealt with god and by by god in such a wonderful way would again our our hearts the idea is here it was willful rejection and it just wasn't oh i made a mistake i had a bad day i slipped up a little bit this was willful conscious choices repetitively in his life and god's holding him severely account to doing this for now he's going to be held accountable verse 10 therefore behold god says I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. That is, there'd be no more uh, descendants keeping up the line of the throne. It will be given to someone else. I'll take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone verse 11 the dogs he says shall eat whoever belongs to jeroboam and dies in the city and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field for the lord has spoken notice exclamation point now understand for a jew that was a tremendous disgrace because to them it it was very very important to them that you had a dignified burial so to hear that somebody's corpse would just be, in a sense, disgraced and be laying out in the open field and the dogs and the birds of the prey would just come and and eat and devour the rotting flesh of the corpse. I mean, that was a tremendous disgrace to them. That was like the most dishonored thing that could possibly happen. So uh, God is just emphasizing, you know, all respect, he's saying, is going to be taken away from you because of these horrible things you've done, not only yourself, but he said you introduced this into the whole nation. We're going to read as we go forward, there's going to be this constant repetition to the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam. As I said, for for literally years to come, the nation will be guilty because of the things they learned from this one wicked king. Verse 12, he says, Arise therefore, go to your own house, and when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. So there's the answer, the child was not going to recover. And all Israel, notice, shall mourn for him and bury him. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. So take notice. Here's what I said earlier. We don't know the exact age of this child that is going to die, apparently, however, Jeroboam's son. But here the Holy Spirit of God, through the word of the prophet, is sending back word. Listen, the child is going to die. But after having said what would happen to all of his descendants, this disgraceful death that they would end up in, the house would be just taken away in disgrace and shame. Notice he says, verse 13 here, that this child, because something good was found in him toward the Lord God of Israel, that is God saw something in the heart of this young child, whether he's 10, 12, 15, where he had something in his heart of character and love towards the Lord. And God saw that, that he had a heart in some way towards the Lord, despite who his father was and his wickedness. And God seeing that said, he's the only one of your family who shall come to the grave. The idea is that we'll have a peaceful, dignified death. Everybody else would just be like a corpse laying on the side of the road, just devastated. But he says he's going to have a peaceful, respectful death and the people will grieve and mourn over him. Now, this is a very interesting thing because take notice, God is speaking of the death of this child And God is saying, I'm going to allow this child's illness to to bring about death. And he says, I'm going to allow this to actually happen because in him there's actually found something good toward the Lord. Now, 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 that's hard for our natural mind to reconcile. How could God say, because something good is in the heart of this child, I'm going to actually allow this child to die early rather than to continue to live and grow up in this family? Well, look, we need to understand perhaps God in his sovereignty at times looking upon this child knowing the wickedness and the vileness and the the horrendous things that existed in this household and this family and the things that this child who apparently at a young age had a love for the Lord would have to be then subjected to and go through that God in his mercy said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just take this child home early. I'm just going to release this child at an early age and I'm going to spare this child from all of the sin and the hardships and the pain and the problems that if he were to continue to live out his days in the house of Jeroboam, it would be absolutely horrible for him. So God says, I'm actually just going to bring him home early. I'm just going to actually honor his love for me and the good thing I see in his heart and I'm just going to bring him into my presence early and spare him from having to live through things on this earth that would have been much more difficult for him because of the wicked home life that he found himself in. Very interesting to see. So God allows this young child to die. Verse 14, Moreover, the Lord will then raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. For this is the day, what even now... For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and he will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they've made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give up Israel or give Israel up because of the sins, notice, because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and made Israel sin. So now God here speaks prophetically, verse 15 and 16, of the ultimate outcome of their idolatry and their sin and rebellion against the Lord as a nation. He speaks of the coming time, way out yet still, but it will eventually come, when Israel, it says, will be uprooted by God from the good land in which he had put them in. And what he's referring to there is what we often refer to as the Assyrian captivity. When in 722 B.C., The Assyrians will come in, conquer, and take captive the northern kingdom of Israel and will bring them away into captivity and God will allow them to be uprooted and removed from their land. And one of the consequences of their sin nationally is the security that they once had as a nation. God will take his hand off and God will let their enemies overcome them. And this is one of the things that God can do at a time. When a nation does not want to honor God and rebels against God, that perhaps God was blessing, God has no problem saying, okay, if you do not want me to be a part of your nation and you don't want my favor and protection and my blessing and preservation on your nation, then I'll just pull back my hands and I'll let other nations conquer you and take you over. And this is exactly what happened in the north. The Assyrians came in, God left them vulnerable, they were taken away captive and captured until Judah later on, the, around 586 B.C., will fall to the Babylonians. But this refers to the captivity of the Assyrians. Verse seven, then Jer 17. Excuse me, Jeroboam's wife arose, departed, and came to Tirzah. And when she came to the threshold of the house, as was prophesied, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers and then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So after 22-year reign, Jeroboam now dies. Nadab, keep that name in mind, will be the next king of the northern part of Israel Verse 21, we now go back to the southern kingdom of Judah. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. And Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah, And Ammonitis. So again, the Bible's indicating to us here Rehoboam's mother, particularly one of, remember, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and it says that he loved many foreign women from other nations. In the sense, the problem of that is that these foreign women from other nations worshiped foreign gods, and they were idolaters. And this probably no doubt had a great influence. ...on their sons as the mothers have an incredible influence on their children. And she was an Ammonitess and the Ammonites worshipped all types of foreign deities. And so probably this contributed to Rehoboam becoming ultimately the wicked man that he did. Verse 22, now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we're talking about the southern kingdom. Notice, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed... More than all their fathers had done. So because of their evil, notice, it says they provoked the Lord to jealousy. Not to anger initially, but to jealousy. Because God said all the way back in the book of Revelation, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He's jealous because of his love for us. And look, there is a godly, proper, righteous jealousy in love. I love my wife. There's a a, a proper love and devotion and covenant that we share that if she were to begin engaging or having relationships and interaction with another man, that would be a proper reason to be jealous. That's a proper jealousy. It's a normal jealousy. Well, God loves his people with a perfect love. And he's like a husband. He loves us like a wife. And so when we turn away from the Lord, it causes a jealousy, a godly jealousy, a proper jealousy. And so God was jealous because the people were provoking him to anger and jealousy with the sins that they were committing against him. For they also built for themselves, it says verse 23, high places and sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and on every green tree. The idea of the picture here is spiritual adultery. And that is the image that God often uses when his people, Israel, would be unfaithful to him. God would refer to it as spiritual adultery. That the same pain and heartache that comes when someone violates the marriage covenant, the pain of adultery that it brings into a relationship, God says, that's the pain that I feel when my people turn away from me. It's like the pain of adultery when they they go whoring after other gods in place of honoring and giving their attention to me. And this is what was happening here with the nation... In the south with the people of Judah as well. And there were also, verse 24, as they turned to other things away from God, there were also perverted persons in the land. And the Hebrew there, if it doesn't have it in your translation, literally is a reference to male shrine prostitutes. It's a reference to male homosexual prostitutes that were used in the practices of worship of these pagan deities. So this is a reference to the fact of, again, not hidden, but just open, celebrated homosexuality in the nation, perverted persons in the lands and embracing a, a national celebration of the homosexual agenda and males particularly. And they did according to all the abominations, it says, of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So take notice, where did God's people, the people of Judah, learn these perverted practices of homosexuality, God said they learned it from the abominations of the nations who they were seeking to drive out of them. In other words, it was the pagan, ungodly people who had no relationship with God, no light spiritually, no sense of what was right or wrong. They were practicing homosexuality in their unconverted condition, and then this began to become introduced even among the people of God. They began to embrace it themselves. And the nation began to just welcome with open arms as it was spiraling downward morally. There was a great perversity coming over the nation of Judah. And it happened in the fifth year, it says, of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. And the king Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them away and brought them back into the guard room. So take notice what begins to happen. Again, as I said earlier, because of their sin against God, because of their turning away from God, they become defenseless. God just lets them be vulnerable. And now the king of Egypt comes up and God allows their enemy to overcome them. Shishak comes up against them, launches an attack against them. Notice it says, verse 26, he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. What he, this, this wicked, evil king robs them of the things of God. The good treasures and things of God that they once had, the wicked king robs it away from them. Look, can I just say, in the Bible, Egypt is always a picture of the world and so the the, the king of this world the God of this age the Bible says is the devil and so to me this is a very fitting picture of exactly what happens when God's people turn away from him the unfortunate thing is we allow the wicked king of this world the devil to come in and to rob the good treasures and things of God out of our lives And, and we allow him to just steal away remember Jesus said that the devil was what a thief who just comes to rob and to kill and to destroy and that's all he wants to do and when we turn away from the Lord, we make ourselves susceptible to the attacks of the enemy, vulnerable for him to come in and, and to just rip us off. And look, Rehoboam finds himself losing the, the gold shields and all the valuable things his father had. So he tries to almost kind of cover up the loss in his life. He starts making bronze shields. They kind of look like gold. And so things are falling apart, but he's trying to act like they are. Just make some bronze shields. Maybe the people won't notice. And he's trying to kind of hide that things are deteriorating amongst himself. Verse 29 says, Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we'll see that when we get to the book of Chronicles. Now there was war between Rehoboam, again the southern kingdom, and Judah all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Naamah. And Ammonitus and then Abijam, some translations and other places refer to this young man as Abijah, his son, same person, Abijah or Abijam reigned in his place. So we now come to the next king there of the southern kingdom will now be Abijam or Abijah. Chapter 15, verse 1 says it was in the 18th year, chronologically, when King Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was still on the throne. Again, certain of we're kind of stepping back a little bit, but the Bible is giving us chronology of when he came to power. Again, so a lot of times they were co-regents for a few years before they took over. And Abijam reigned three years, so it wasn't a long reign in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mayaka, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And he, sadly, walked in the sins of his father. And that's always such a shame when that happens with a young man, when he which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father, David. So Abijam, this young man, having been exposed to the sins of his father, the wicked practices of his father, Jeroboam, noticed tragically, this is often the case as so many times the patterns and practices of a father are adopted by a child and they're so often adopted by a son. And, and here it says right there that he walked in all the sins of his father. He just embraced the same wrong practices, the same ungodly activities, the, the same corrupt ways of living. He walked in the sins of his father, which had been done before him. He saw it, and unfortunately, he just kind of caught the same bad habits and found excuses and reasonings why he would just sort of embrace the same wrong practices. And what an unfortunate thing began to happen with this young man adopting the practices of his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp. In Jerusalem, by setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. And we'll see that in the next few verses. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except, of course, we know, in that matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now, notice, God is going to be favorable to the house of Judah, and predominantly for one reason. Verse 4 says it was for David's sake that the Lord continue to give a lamp, it says there in verse 4, to Jerusalem. It was for David's sake. It wasn't for their sake. It was God being gracious to the people for King David's sake because of the covenant relationship that God had made together with David. So again, it was for the sake of someone else that others were being blessed. For the sake of King David, God was bringing his blessing upon others. And listen, honestly, that is a very fitting picture because It's not for David's sake that we are blessed. We are blessed for Jesus' sake. One greater than David, the son of David. We receive the grace of God in our life and God's blessing and kindness and we can expect to be blessed not for our sake but for Jesus' sake because of who we know and because of who we're in relationship and because who we're connected to. Because you're connected to Jesus God's blessing, God's gracious hand and favor is towards you. Irregardless of who you are, or what you've done or where you've been, it's not about your performance at the end of the day. The Lord wants to be gracious and bless you for Jesus' sake. And how wonderful to be connected to Jesus, to have him as our ultimate king ruling over us and that the Lord honors that covenant and is so kind to us in our lives so often, even as here for David's sake. He was in a, in a, a smaller way being gracious to the southern kingdom. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the act of Abijam and all he did, again written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, and he rested with his fathers as well, and buried in the city of David. And then Asa, next king, Asa his son reigned in his place. Now we're going to see Asa. We're going to wrap up with him tonight. Was a very godly king, and I want you to please notice the contrast wicked king wicked king godly king because this goes to show that we each have a decision what we choose to do with our lives despite what we've been exposed to what our upbringing was or our background was in the 20th year of jeroboam king of israel asa became king over judah he reigned 41 years in jerusalem he had a long reign his grandmother's name was mayaka And Asa, look at verse 11. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David. Now, wait a minute. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David did. When you get to 2 Chronicles, we'll read a lot more of an expanded description of Asa. He was one of the, the, the good and more godly kings in the southern kingdom. Here's the thing you gotta remember, though. His grandfather was who? Jeroboam. Incredibly wicked man. His father, who we just read about, Abijam, incredibly wicked man. So here is a young man who came from two generations of sinful practices, sinful living, being exposed before him, all types of wrong ways of living, dishonoring God, sinful habits and practices. And yet this young man chose, listen, to be a chain breaker. And he said, I don't care what my father did. I don't care what my grandfather did. That were those two generations... Something different's happening in my generation. And he chose to be a chain breaker. And he chose to say, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to walk pleasing to God. I'm not going to follow the same practices and sins that my grandfather and my father did. I am going to serve the Lord. I'm going to live differently and pass on a different exposure to my children, a different opportunity to the next generation. So just this beautiful thing to see there, this young man doing what's right in the sight of the Lord, having this long, stable reign. And we read here in these last few verses a couple of things that he did, shows you how he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse 12. It says he banished, remember the problem? He banished the perverted persons from the land. So look, he he had no tolerance for immorality. He wasn't someone who said, "Well, I mean, no, that's perversity. It's wrong. It's dishonoring to God. It's destructive to families. It's not God's design. It's going to destroy our nation. It's going to ruin families." And so he banished. He rid the land of these perverse practices of these male homosexual prostitutes that were practicing openly, celebrating the things they were doing. He dealt with it. He took a strong stance against it with his national authority. He rid the land of that. He also removed all the idols that his father's had made, so he tore down. Notice the the idolatrous practices. Again, stood against his own father, tore down the idols that his father had made. Verse 13, this is how you can know somebody's really serious. Also, he removed Mayaka, his grandmother, from being queen mother. So he dethroned granny. You know somebody's serious when they do that. He dethroned her. Because why? She had made an obscene image of Asherah that is a perverted image. Asherah was the the goddess of sex that was worshipped in fertility practices. All types of just filthy pornographic activity and images that would be set up for people was sort of an ancient version of open pornography. And she had set up some obscene image publicly. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated. That is, he, he reinstituted proper temple worship. He sought to restore the house of God as well as the things that he had dedicated, silver and gold. So he seeks to restore what is good and godly in the house of the Lord again. And he seeks to rid the land of what is perverse. Now, now let me go back to to this thought for a moment as, as we close. Again, as I said, it says he did there what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And his heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. See, this is someone who, he loved the Lord with such a a wholehearted devotion that his primary desire was, you know what, Lord, I just want to lay my head down on my pillow at the end of every night and I just want to know that you're pleased. And Lord, if no one else understands, even if my mother and my father and even my grandmother don't agree, Lord I just want to do what's pleasing to you and I'll tell you I'm sure he loved his mother and father natural love is natural love I'm sure he loved his granny who wants to be mean to your granny but she was doing something that displeased God it was dishonorable it was sinful and he loved the Lord more than he loved any human being and so therefore he took a strong stand against this even to the point where he was willing to say look even if I have to lose a human relationship or cause tension in a human relationship if that's what it means to love the Lord more I will even stand against my own family in order to stand loyal with my Lord. And you know, that is an important thing and an important place to come to our life. Let me leave you with the words of Jesus. Jesus said this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, For I have not come to set a man against his father and mother, a daughter against his, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, Jesus made a strong statement. He says, I want your primary loyalty. I want your primary loyalty. And think of the strength of the love that we share with our natural family members, so many of us. But if the place ever comes in your life or the time ever arrives when you have to choose between being devoted and loyal to your family or devoted and loyal to the Lord. Be loyal to the Lord. Love the Lord. Stand for the Lord, and He will honor that. Why don't we stand and pray together?